Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. It's interesting. It, it doesn't take people long to talk about church. Uh, a lot of opinions about it. And I think opinions we need to hear. Sometimes uh, we're here. And if you've been in church for a long time, there's obvious answers maybe to us that aren't so obvious out there. And so in this series, we're looking at why church? Why be involved in church? Why believe? What, what is God doing through it? And uh, as we start to unpack some of that, maybe you have those questions yourself. We're glad that you're here. And I say that not only to those who are new to the church, but the reality is there's a lot of people that have been in church for a long time. Some who've been raised in the church. Some who are just coming into adulthood. And maybe you're wrestling with it for the first time. And over the next few weeks, as, as we dive in, last week I looked at specific objections. Next few weeks we want to look at specifically what does Scripture say about it? How do we find answers in it? And it's easy when you start thinking about church and why church to immediately go to the individual experience. What does it do for me? What do I gain from it? Where do I fit in with it? And Scripture speaks to those. But this week I want to back up just a little bit. I want to look at the big picture answers around it of why church matters, specifically from what we see that God's doing. And if you look in your notes, kind of three big things, you look in this that, that the church, and when I use that term church, I'm talking big C church. I'm talking all churches, churches who believe, follow Jesus Christ. We've rallied around that. It's not one specific campus. The church is made up of a little, little C churches, venture being one of them. The church is God's plan. I mean, we need to start there. It was what he came up with. And, and I know it doesn't always, we don't always execute that plan perfectly. We look at it differently. But, but before we just dismiss it out of hand, you have to step back and go, what was it that God was trying to do in the world? And he didn't always do it through church. If you look at it, you go all the way back. He started in the garden with a couple, one family. And then as that family fell and, and all of humanity is dealt with the impact of that fall, he then went to one man, Abram. And he called him and from Abram's family, he started a nation of Israel. And he worked in the world through that nation, through the kings of that nation, through the priest of the nation, through the temple system, one physical place on this planet that was a theocracy, so that the, the government and the religion were combined together. Through that, the world would know him. And then radically, he actually came to this planet. God in flesh, Jesus Christ, who lived, walked, died on a cross, rose again in the process of that, took care of the greatest need humanity had, which was our sinfulness, so that we could actually have a relationship with God and relationship with each other. Now, in that moment, though, what was Jesus doing from that point forward? Because up to that point, he'd been through a family, through a government, through a physical place. And then he launched this radical thing that his followers, by the way, didn't see coming. Paul describes it as this great mystery. He launches the church. And when I say that, we immediately go to our experience. Here's what I want you to grab onto. Jesus came to actually bring the kingdom of God here. He came to bring the kingdom of God. Now, Kingdom language, even that word kingdom, some people see it immediately and they go, yeah, that's what's wrong with church. 
It's kingdom, it's government, it's fighting. Uh, It's trying to dominate in the world. It's this political party or that political party that we can get caught up in. You know, one of the objections people say about church, you'll hear this, is that, you know, more people have been killed in the name of religion than any other thing. So it can't be right. I mean, just dive into that for just a moment with that. Now, we recognize throughout church history, throughout our history, the last 2,000 years, people have mixed this up and they have thought, yeah, we need to physically dominate. And so there's times in church history, you see the crusades, this horrible display of power where, where armies in the name of Christ went back to take the Holy Land and killed people in it. You look at the Inquisitions. You look at different times through church history. In fact, I was researching this week, and and they estimated all the people that would be killed in the name of Christianity. Now, I wouldn't say it's accurate, and as we'll look at Jesus' words, it wasn't what he was launching. But it's about 17 million people throughout church history, if you look at it. It's horrific. Horrific that anyone would die in that. But when I then compare that, because people will go, see, yeah, that's everything wrong with it, and more people die in the name of religion than any other thing. Well, that's not true. In fact, if you look at resources, a couple of resources in it, there's two different encyclopedias. There's one encyclopedia of wars and another one called the Encyclopedia of War. Both estimate over the last five millennia, there's been 1,760 battles, wars that have been fought. Of that, and these are two different resources, neither of which, they're just secular resources. Of that, they would classify about 7% of those battles, 123 or so, as actually religious, religious wars. If you take out 66 of those, which are Islamic wars, you're down to less than 3%. I mean, if you just did the math of those who've been killed in the name of atheistic systems, just in the 20th century alone, if you take the number of people that were killed when Mao came into China with communism, Take the number of people that were killed that Stalin came in, a number of which were Christians in it, by the way. You take Cambodia, you look at North Korea, you can get well over 100 million very quickly in that one century killed by atheistic systems, by the way. They're trying to stamp out religion and stamp out God. So so the objection that people kind of throw out that religion is the source of all, it's really not true. The numbers don't hold up in it. But whether the numbers hold up or not, we as the church never want to get caught up in power movements like that. Because I think we absolutely miss what Jesus was trying to do. Why do I say that? Look when Jesus came in Mark chapter 1. After John the Baptist was arrested, this is when Jesus is beginning his public ministry. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So in light of the kingdom, what should we do? What's the kingdom going to be built on? Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, he's kind of foreshadowing what he's about to do. Notice when when he shows up, first thing he starts saying is God's kingdom is here. God's kingdom is now invading this place in a new way. So much so that God himself was there. They didn't realize that. And he tells them, repent. You you need to look at your life and accept the gospel. Now, we know what the gospel is. The gospel is the fact that God did live here, died on a cross. Through that was the sacrifice for our sins and rose again. See, here's what I want you to see. He's building his kingdom 
But he's not building it on an army. He's not building it through a government. He's not building it on all the forces of might that people would think you built a kingdom on. He's doing something so much more radically. He's starting individually, life by life, through the power of the gospel that actually set people free. It's the kingdom that he is building through his church. He's building it through his church. And and we often kind of lower the sights that church for us becomes kind of an experience. It's a building. It's a place to go on the weekend. It's kind of a group within that. And I think we lose that big picture perspective of how did that match with what God was launching on this planet? I I saw a video. It's a few years old, uh, pretty simple in it. It's a whiteboard drawing of it that that really kind of aligns. How does church fit with kingdom? And I want us to watch it together because I do think it's a great summary of it. Churches are full of people, the broken, the lonely, the wanderers, the hopeful, the enthusiastic, the lost, the passionate, and the faithful. For many, this gathering represents the whole of their church experience. They'll listen attentively to a message, they'll sing a few songs, they'll be invited to pray, and then they'll return to their lives. But for some, questions will start bubbling to the surface of their faith. Is this the extent of what Jesus intended for his followers? Who is the church for? Why does the world need the church, and what is the church after all? Well, the church isn't the building where people attend weekly services. It's not a program, a list of rules, or a philosophy. The church isn't a political affiliation, a country club, or a holiday tradition. The church was never intended to be just an assembly of people wearing nice clothes and saying nice things. The church is all the followers of Jesus everywhere. The Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. It's the combination of two words, ek, which means out, and kaleo, meaning called. Thus, the church, the ecclesia, means the called out ones. In other words, the church, the collective body of all the followers of Jesus everywhere, is called out by someone for something, for a purpose. The beginning of the book of Acts has Jesus calling his disciples to a task, bringing something called the gospel, the good news, to all the world. And this gospel would go out to all the outsiders, the forgotten, the abandoned, and the excluded. And they, those outsiders, would see and receive that good news as actually good. When Jesus talked about the gospel, it was always in conjunction with something else, something called the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, God's purposes are made apparent. There's justice and righteousness. There's hope for the poor and for the oppressed. And under the kingdom of God, mercy and forgiveness take precedence over bitterness and resentment. Now, people previously deemed to be far from God are brought into his family, adopted as his sons and daughters. And the fullness of the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is not merely expressed as a way for people to escape an evil world when they die. Rather, the good news of God's kingdom is about the announcement of God's eternity moving into the present world and carrying on into the life to come. The people who belong to Jesus join him in his worldwide restoration project. And the called out ones, the church, are committed to advancing this good news of God's kingdom into the world. Not as a means of helping people avoid the world, but rather to see God's kingdom life being made real here and now. The whole church with the power of the whole gospel for the whole world. Isn't it good to just step back? See, I think think so often we we hear church and we reduce it immediately to a building on a corner or a place I go. 
Or, or we reduce it kind of that Jesus came so that individually we can get right with God and we've got our ticket to heaven when we die. And church is kind of that place that helps us get through the rest of life until we get there. And let's just hold on until we get there. And, and what Jesus was launching was so much more. Jesus came and, and this is what he's saying. I'm here to launch the kingdom of God here. I'm here to reclaim this place that has fallen to the kingdom of darkness and the powers that be. And we see it with sin and sickness and death and the way people treat each other. And he's called his church to engage with him. How do we take this good news, this gospel, and unleash it in a way that lives are actually impacted by it? And Jesus, from the very beginning, he never settled for less. Doesn't mean that this is our destiny. We will go to heaven one day. We will be in eternity, but we're here to make this place more like that place. That's why when Jesus taught us to pray, remember what he said? He said, pray, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, where? On earth as it is in heaven. That's what God's called us to unleash. And it's amazing when you look the very first time he ever utters the word church. First time you see it in the New Testament. Look at it in Matthew 16. He's talking to his disciples and they're gathered in a group and he asks them a question. Who do people say I am? And he, they kind of tell him, eh, they say you're a prophet. They say you're a teacher. They, they say all these things about you. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter just has this divine inspiration. He says, man, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. Jesus looks at him and says, yeah, God told you that. And, and then he looks at Peter and he says, I tell you, and up to that point, his name had been Simon. He says, you are Peter, literally the rock. Now I know Dwayne Johnson thinks he's the rock. <laughs> Simon was the original rock. And I, and I gotta imagine, you know, if you're getting a nickname from Jesus and it's actually a cool one, it's gotta be an awesome experience. He looks at you, you're the rock, man. You'd be like, yes. He goes, you're the rock. And on this rock, I will build, and, and here he uses that word, that ecclesia, those called out ones who are gathered together for him. He says, I'm going to build my church. And he's talking about the truth that Peter had declared, the truth about him, but it's also the truth that was in him, what he's going to do through him in this group. Now, and I love the way he, he then finishes. I'm going to build my church. And notice what he doesn't say. I'm going to build my church and we're going to get a church building on every street corner in every country because we're going to take this place. That's what he doesn't say. We're going to build a church and get people together and they're going to be good boys and girls and we're going to teach them how to keep their noses clean. Now look what Jesus says. He goes, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, Jim Collins, the, the business writer and consultant, he, he always says every group, every company needs to have a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. Something that's just big that drives you. I, I want to say this is the BHAG of all BHAGs. Especially when you look at the little group he's gathered with. I mean, he's got 12 guys who are infighting all the time, who don't quite understand what he's doing. 
And he looks at them, this little group on a dusty plain in a little country, following an itinerant teacher that the world has never heard of. And he looks at him and he says, we're going to launch something that not only impacts this planet, we're taking it all the way to the gates of hell, to the forces of darkness, and their strongholds are not going to stand against it. Man, I love the vision. I love what he's talking about. You know what I love even more? He did it. In fact, he, he did it in a way, those of us who live 2,000 years later, we don't realize the impact. When he's talking about the gates of hell, he, he's not just talking about fighting a demon in particular. He's talking about all the forces of darkness. He's talking about injustice in the world. He's talking about the treatment of children and women. He's talking about this, this power system that said might makes right all the time. And he launches a church that goes up against that injustice, it goes up against the treatment of people, goes up against a system where the weak are discarded, and it literally changed the world. Yeah, I, I'm reading the book by Jordan Peterson, 12 Rules for Life. It's a great book, real interesting. I, I don't know where Peterson is spiritually. He admires Christianity, doesn't really claim in parts of it, but, but as he just recognizes in history the impact. Listen to Peterson's words. He said, Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul placing slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and law. He said, if you just look back, it was Christianity that raised this equality of people. The implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. It is, in fact, nothing short of a miracle that the hierarchical slave-based societies of our ancestors reorganized themselves. We forget that the opposite was self-evident throughout most human history. See, we live in a country that even our founding documents say we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That was not the case before. In fact, what was self-evident before was that if you were the most powerful, if you were the sharpest, if you could enslave people, if you could dominate people, if you could own people, that was self-evident and that was right. What changed it? P Peterson goes on, he, he tells us what changed it. The society produced by Christianity was far less barbaric than the pagans. Even the Roman one it, it replaced. It objected to infanticide, the death of children, to prostitution, sex being sold. It objected to the principle that might makes right. It insisted that women were as invaluable as men. That was not accepted before Christianity. It demanded that even a society's enemies be regarded as human. All of this, and listen to his summary line, all of this was asking the impossible, but it happened. How? Because when Jesus came, he said, I'm going to launch my church. 
And we're not just going to settle for how to tell people how they can have a ticket to heaven. We're not going to settle how we can have little nice quaint places of worship and we can gather together and we're happy as long as we're with each other. He said, that's never been my plan. My plan is that this place would look more like the place I came from. My plan is that we unleash the kingdom of God on this planet and you go up against the powers of injustice and you go up against the powers that are wrong and you go up against the powers that are enslaving lives and you go up against the things that are keeping people pressed down and oppressed in it. And Christianity steps into healthcare and Christianity steps into the justice system and Christianity steps into the way whole society's organized and our planet has been shaped by it. And he did it through his church. Yeah, it's, it's the absolute truth of that. You ask me why the church matters to me. It matters to me because I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of what God planned and how he wants to unleash it on our planet. Second thing in that, the church is God's people. We're literally God's people. Not just who we are, who he's called us to be. We are called together as God's family. This word family is all throughout scripture. And it's not just a metaphor. It's not just kind of a quaint term. He literally means family. He literally means when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we get adopted by God. And he says, I've linked you guys together. It's what Romans 8, I love the chapter in Romans 8. He says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. In other words, everyone who has accepted that free gift of salvation through Christ, we know that in that moment, God actually puts his spirit within you. He's now leading you. But even more than that, he says, you're sons of God. Now, women, he's not trying to turn you into man. What what he's actually saying here is pretty radical because in that culture, the sons were the only ones who received the family rights and the family inheritance. But in God's family, he says, no, all men and women get the same rights. God, God doesn't hold anything back from you. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. We're not his slaves, we're his children. By whom we cry, Abba, Dad. It's an intimate relationship. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are a part of God's family. And as you look at that and and what it means to be family, sometimes I get asked in it though, So Tim, are you saying I need to go to church to be a part of the family of God? And and I would say, no, I I really don't. But I would ask you this. How good of a relationship would you have with your natural family if you never went home? I mean, how good would your marriage be if you go, oh yeah, I'm in the family. Oh yeah, I'm married. We don't live together. Um, you know, I, I see the family a couple of times a year, holidays, around the holidays, we get together. It's good. Really good. Good time. Love, love the experience. Really deep to me. Very special. I mean, at some point you'd look up and go, I, I, I don't have a very good relationship here. And, and sometimes people that go, yeah, I don't like church and church is cold. And I don't feel connected to church. And you ask them, well, do you ever go? Well, No. And there's a part of it, it's like any other relationship. You're not going to have that if you don't invest in it too. 
If you don't step into it and go, yeah, I, I want to be, and I'm not just talking about attendance here. I, it's not about attendance. It's about actually having a real community and really being connected to people. See, we're God's family. We're also people with purpose. We're people with a purpose that have been called together. We're God's people. And look how Peter puts it. This is a jam-packed verse. We'll, we'll look at it some next week as well. He says, you are a chosen race. That's a great term. One, it means God chose all of us. He wanted all of us in. Two, we're one race. Now, which race is it? It's all of them. It, it, it's the Christian family that he looks together. You know, one of the things I love about being back in the Bay Area and I love being in this church, I love, we have people from all over the world. We have, we have people from, from all different countries. And, and this radical thing that God was doing, it was so radical back in this time, I mean, in Ephesians chapter two, Paul has to write a whole chapter about it, about Jews and Gentiles, because they were so split racially, they couldn't fathom that God would bring us together. And he goes, oh no, God's broken down every wall. You want the answer to racism? It's the family of God. But shouldn't the family of God model that the most? He says, you're a chosen race, a royal, you're royalty. Remember you were adopted by the king and, and you got all the rights. So you're royal. You're also a priesthood. Did you recognize that we're all priests here? That may weird you out a little bit. Nobody's going to make you wear a collar. Here, here's what it means, though. You don't have to have someone mediate your relationship with God. You don't have to go to anybody else, and they represent you to God. You get to go direct. And you actually get to minister in each other's lives. So you can come together and actually confess to each other. Because why? We're priests. You can actually go and, and speak into each other's life and learn from each other and, and accomplish this together as family. We're a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I, I love that. It, it's, it's one of the things that God goes, man, let me tell you what I own. I love this. And he points to us. That you may proclaim, now here's the purpose of it. Why did he do all that? So that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He, he's done all of this so that we show the world something different. We show the world what this kingdom looks like. We show the world what it looks like when Jesus moves into lives and he moves into a place. In a way that they don't always have answers for immediately. It's interesting, I was reading part of the book, Between the World and Me. It's a, a pretty interesting, strong book. Uh, written by the author Ta-Nehisi Coates. And, and it basically the whole book is a letter to his son, Samori. And in it, he's writing as an African-American man, his frustrations, the things that he thinks his son will face. His son's an adolescent as he's writing it. And it made the New York Times bestseller list. And, and in it, I mean, he writes, his, listen to his words. He says, racism is a visceral experience which, which rips at the black body. And as he writes, he says, I don't have much hope in the future for hope is specious. And he makes it clear, I have no hope in God and I have no hope in the church. Church is not going to solve this. Toward the end of the book, though, he describes his conversation with a woman, Dr. Mabel Jones. And she's an African-American woman, radiologist. She was raised by two sharecroppers in Louisiana. Went into the Navy 
From there, went to med school, became a radiologist, very successful. She, she had two children, a daughter and a son. His son named Prince was friends with Ta-Nehisi Coates. And her son, in a tragic accident, the police mistook him for a different man. And they shot and killed him. And as Coates wrestled with the loss of his friend in such a senseless act of injustice. And he talked to Dr. Jones about it. The thing that stood out to him is she's a woman of devout Christian faith. And, and she described her pain and she described her disappointment. But, but you know what she kept coming back to? What the church meant to her in that. So much so that, that he writes these words to his son. He, he's watching her life and watching her deal with this. And he writes to his son, he said, I thought of my own distance from the church that has so often been the only support of our people. I often wonder if in that distance I've missed something. Some notions of cosmic hope, some wisdom beyond my mean physical perception of the world, something beyond the body that I might have transmitted to you. I wondered that because something beyond anything I have ever understood drove Mabel Jones to an exceptional life. Do you hear his words? I, I love that. Th this man, who, who, he doesn't believe in the church. He doesn't believe, but he looks at this one woman and he goes, there's something exceptional about her. There's something about her life. There's something about how she's processing this. There's something about how she believes in it that it makes me wonder. See, that, that's what we're called to be. We're people with purpose like that, that as we live out what God's called us to be, you know, when I talk about being the church and the church changing the world, I'm not talking about church staff. I'm not talking about just what happens on this campus. I'm talking about being the church, the way you do your job every day, the way you go to what he's vocationally called you to do. That's your ministry, by the way. Because remember, the kingdom has taken the whole planet, not just street corners where church buildings are, the whole planet. He wants your office. He wants your company. He, he wants to impact everybody there. He wants them to experience the love of God. He wants you to work in such an excellent way. He wants you to live in that way that people look at it and they go, I don't understand that life. There's something there. That's what he's called us to be as his people. In fact, it, it, it finishes with the final point. The church is God's proof. It's God's proof. It, it's how we show the world that. We prove to the world who our God really is. I, I, out of all the ways he could do it. I mean, think about it. He's God, guys. He could show up every day and right across the sky and show us a movie of who he is if he wanted to. He could have written many more documents. He could visit once a year and come down. But he decided to do it through us. He said, this is the best way to reveal himself. And, and as we look at that, how he works through us, it's very specific in that proof. It's what they see. In Matthew 5, 16, he said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Not just hear your good words. Not just come and, and you can hear about it. He said, no, they actually need to see it. 
They need to see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That they would look at our lives. They would look at what we do. And when he's talking about these good works, I mean, you look at what Jesus did. Radical acts of love. And he's called his church, and he's called us, not just here, but outward, to radically love our community, to radically love our world, to radically still be on the front line of all of those issues that the kingdom of God is addressing, to radically take on the forces of darkness with that. You know, one of the things I I love about this church, this is a church that has always given and gone and continues to do so. In fact, next month we'll start celebrating a whole series, Neighborhood to Nations, of how we can be involved in in doing this, living this. And, And in that we do a faith promise campaign. This is a giving campaign over and above regular giving where this church every year gives at least one and a half to two million dollars. Over and above. And and one of the privileges I have as one of the signers of checks around here. As they come across my desk, I see especially a lot of those faith promise checks that are going out. And and, and when you see the money that's going from your generosity so that people that don't have clean water have clean water now. And people that don't have food have food now. And schools that are being built. And women and children that are being rescued from sexual slavery and given a, a new training and a new life with it. When you see the education of orphans and kids in poverty, when you see those who are doing training centers, those who are planning churches, those who are out there on the front lines, when you see it across the Bay Area and around the world, these tangible, radical acts of love, that's what we have to do. If they don't see it, they don't realize how good our God is. And he says, you go and you do that to show them what he's doing. We, we do that to show our love in here. It's not only what we do out there. He also says they're looking at how you treat each other in here. This is probably one of the biggest criticisms of church. People go, well, church people, look at how they treat each other. And, and, and we have to address that because look what Jesus said. He said, by this, my people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, you love each other so much, even in your disagreements. You love each other so much because we're family together. Guys, we can't lose this witness. We can't lose this witness in election cycles because we might disagree on certain things. And as you look at the church ripping each other apart over an election, I go, you know what? I think there's something more than one election. There's a kingdom that we're here to unveil and we need to love each other through it. Radically love each other through it. We need to to love each other as we wrestle with these questions. There's some of you here that you're wrestling whether you really believe this. There's some of you here you're wrestling with church itself. And, And I would just say for those of us who are involved in the church and we love the church, this should be the place they can wrestle and we don't need to be defensive about it. It should be the place. You may come here for a while and ultimately you don't even agree with what we're saying, but please still come, engage us in it. Maybe you're you're dealing with it. You know, it's interesting. I was reading the the story of Nathan Foster. His dad, Richard Foster, wrote a number of Christian books, had been a pastor for years. And Nathan, as, as a young adult, was finally wrestling with church. And he's frustrated. He didn't know how to bring it up to his dad in particular because his dad had given his life to the church. And finally one day they were on a ski lift. And as they were going up the lift, he he says these words. He just finally blurted out, I hate going to church. It's nothing against God. I just don't see the point. And then his dad, Richard, said, 
Yes, son, sadly, many churches today are simply organized ways of keeping people from God. And he, he was surprised. Dad didn't get defensive. And because he didn't, Nathan just began his rant. He said, okay, so since Jesus paid such great attention to the poor and disenfranchised, why isn't the church the world's epicenter for racial and social and economic justice? I've found more grace and love in worn out folks at the local bar than in, those, in the pew. Instead of allowing our pastors to be real human beings with real problems, we prefer some sort of overworked rock star. And again, dad didn't get defensive. He kind of laughed. He goes, oh, that's a pretty good line, overworked rock star. Sounds like you've been kind of gnawing on this for a while. Nathan was so surprised that instead of fighting, his dad said, let's talk. You can wrestle here. And over the course of that winter, he began his own faith journey back. In fact, he would say, somewhere amid the wind and the snow of the Continental Divide, I decided that if I'm not willing to be an agent of change in my church, my critique is a waste. Regardless of how it is defined, I was learning that the church was simply a collection of broken people, recklessly loved by God. Jesus said he came for the sick, not the healthy. And certainly our churches reflect that. I would encourage you, for those of us, maybe you love church, and when you hear any critique of it, it, it hurts. And there's a part that we want to get defensive. And, and Jesus is called, how do we love each other well, even in the struggle? even in those who may be wrestling here, that, that what he's calling us to is bigger than that. We are his proof. Not only that, I, I, here's a, a thought maybe you haven't had. We prove to the cosmic powers that our God wins. Let's make this our final point. We don't always think about it in a cosmic scale. What do I mean with cosmic powers? I'm talking about demons. I'm talking about those angelic forces that are out there. Now, why do I say that? Ephesians 3 is a strange little verse. We don't talk about much, but it really is pretty powerful. Paul says, so that through the church, through us, the manifold wisdom of God, this plan that God's doing, his wise plan, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Isn't that interesting? He said this thing that God's doing, unleashing his kingdom through his church, shows the demonic forces, shows the heavenly forces, that, that our God's plan works, that he wins. And, and, and as you look at that, it, it is fascinating to me because I've always wondered, how, how does Satan really think he's going to win? You ever looked at it? I mean, you, you look how God has overcome him. Over, why does he think he'll win in the end? And, and I don't think Satan thinks he can win against God directly. I mean, he's already proven that. He took on God. He was cast out. But I think he thinks he can win because we are God's great weakness. As long as it's not being against being, but kingdom against kingdom. As long as God's committed himself to us and is willing to work through us and actually become one of us. See, I think Satan thinks he can win here. And, and, and the greatest thing I love about our God is he has aligned himself with us. He works through us. 
He actually, it says in scripture, he called the weak and the foolish and the powerless. It's like God assembled his team with us. And it it is like the boss move of all boss moves that he looks at Satan and says, bring the strength of your kingdom and I can win with these guys. In fact, I can win through these guys. I will become one of them in order to lead them. And, and, And so this cosmic battle that takes place, this is what's happening in the book of Job, by the way, guys. In the book of Job, Satan walks into God and says, I'm winning. Look at the whole world. They're all corrupt. I won. And God says, oh, wait, did you see Job? And Satan says, well, of course, Job likes you. You give him everything he wants. You take it away and see what happens. So God pulls back and says, okay, Satan, you can touch him. You can't take his life. Job loses his businesses and his wealth. He loses his children. He he loses his health. He he gets to keep his wife, but she's not much help. She comes in and complains every day. (laughs) Yeah. And he's got friends who show up and keep telling him it's his fault. He must have done something wrong. And Job has real questions, but he never gives up on God. And God looks at him and says, there's exhibit A. I win. You know, that same story plays out here. Same evidence right here. Some of you here, your business is falling apart, but you still trust God. Some of you have been hurt in relationships so deeply but you haven't given up on God. Some of you are struggling with addictions that run so deep, but you still come here looking to God. Some of you, you have been hurt deeply, but you forgive because you've been forgiven by God. Some of you, you struggle with with shame and guilt, but you're not letting that define your life because you actually believe the gospel of God and you come here. Some of you, you come here and right now you can't see God. You can't see what's going on. You have the same kind of questions as Job, but you come here And as we gather together, as we sing together, as we come as the body of Christ, as we stand together, some of you, when you sing, it's an act of holy defiance against all the powers of darkness. They don't win. They don't win. Our God wins. And he's powerful enough. He can win through us and in us. Why does church matter? It's God's plan, guys. We're God's people. And amazingly enough, we are the proof he's showing the whole world that he wins. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.